Hey everyone, we are back. I know you guys missed me. It's been a long time, so we have a lot of news to cover today, but before we get started, I just wanted to share that yes, I had a successful delivery in early September, and my husband and I are so thankful to welcome our little baby boy. So I know you guys would be curious about that. Maybe I'll share some more news in later weeks, but for now, we are gonna move to some Alberta coverage. Now, rather ironically, my first episode back in about four months, yes, I'm not in my studio, I'm not in Alberta, I'm actually in Toronto. I had to fly in for some very important work, and so today I will be joined by my colleague, Andrew Lawton. I'm in Toronto. We were uh, very busy at the arcade yesterday playing some games. <laughs> I'm a little embarrassed to admit that Andrew actually crushed me in Dance Dance Revolution. I did. That came out of nowhere. But I did crush you in some other games, like I think Connect Four, yeah. which is more of a strategy game. So I don't know what that says about you. That I'm a better dancer, but I have no strategic mind. That is not something anyone watching would have expected. No, I think maybe the yeah. opposite is what they would have expected, actually. <laughs> but it was good. Welcome back. Yes, thank you very much. It was a proud moment for me winning that game because I think you went into it with strategy and I was just hoping not to yeah. lose. I also think that you like have confused people by saying you flew to Ontario to go to an arcade with me. Well, that's pretty much what happened. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough, yeah. We're here for the uh, Christmas retreat, so it's been a good time seeing all our colleagues again. So there's been a lot going on in Alberta since I last took off. Andrew's been covering some of that, so we're going to dig into it. And you guys will be happy to know there's actually been some really positive news stories. We actually have a lot of good, strong news stories for you today. I think you guys are going to be excited with what we have. Starting off... Alberta Premier Danielle Smith announced that she is finally dismantling Alberta Health Services. Of course, we know that she was so critical of the COVID-19 pandemics. So they're going to be broken down into four different bodies. AHS is going to be broken down into acute care, primary care, continuing care, and mental health and addiction. Now, Smith said the current system that's been in place for about 14 years since former Premier Ed Stelmach put that in place when under his progressive conservative government forgot the patient and the experts. Andrew, I'm wondering, do you think this could result in the kind of changes that would ensure that a body like AHS couldn't just impose these radical restrictions like the one seen during the COVID-19 pandemic? Yes and no. I mean, I think that like anything else, you still have to look at who's in charge of these things and, you know, where the restrictions would be coming from. I, I think that what it might do, and, and certainly what Danielle Smith has said she hopes it's going to do, is make the body more efficient. So it, it's not really a stopgap against restrictions. I think that's going to come from some of the reforms that uh, she's put in place on where authority comes from in, in public health settings. But as far as AHS, I think that you have a very bloated and bureaucratic institution. And you know, quite frankly, I think she's blown it up in, in a significant way here. I think there's obviously a risk that each of these pillars could go that same road and become its own bureaucracy. But I think a lot of that will come down to the management of it. And I know that healthcare has been a huge priority for her, not just in government, but even when she was really advocating in media and civil society. So I'm hoping this is going to be something that, if it works, could serve as a bit of a roadmap to other provinces. Yeah, and I think that's something that was said. The government mm -hmm. said when they announced this, they were asked, you know, are there any other provinces that are doing this right now? And they said, no, we're leading the way. We're being new and innovative. So absolutely, yeah. that could be the case. Now we know the opposition NDP has been very critical of this move. They said that this is just going to lead to more privatization of healthcare, of course, the age old tale. Now, do you think that's the case? And if there was more privatization, would that even be a bad thing considering the bloating in the systems and also just the extreme wait times that we're seeing? You know, we're having a lot of people just going to the emergency room because they can't get the family doctor. Wait 
wait times up to 11 hours at point. This is just really unacceptable for Canadians and for the cost that they pay for the system mm -hmm. that's not getting the results for them. I mean, when people say the P word, private, a lot of the times they don't really know what they're talking about because we have in the healthcare system in Alberta and elsewhere a lot of private delivery, but you're still not paying for it. It's still not a fee-based service. It's just that the government has found a private vendor that's able to provide this service. And I think in a lot of cases that works quite well. We know that a lot of these organizations are able to specialize. They do very well. And But you get these activists, and a lot of them in the NDP and the unions, that are just terrified of anything private. And they use that as this big, you know, ominous dark cloud over any policy discussion. Now, I mean, look, Danielle Smith, one of her initial ideas during the leadership for the UCP was that she wanted to expand universal health care. She wanted to add a health spending account so people had more opportunities to, using public dollars, get health care services that even now aren't covered. So the idea that she's trying to make it where we're going to have this free-for-all health care system where people will have to pay and they're going to go broke, that's sort of the fear-mongering from the NDP. But it's just not aligned with any policy that's been proposed or enacted by this government. Another big story that we saw in recent months was the Supreme Court ruled that Bill C-69 was largely unconstitutional. Yes. You know, conservatives around the country really celebrated at this. We know that former Premier Jason Kenney called this the no more pipelines bill. Danielle Smith was even a little bit stronger. She said this is the no more major projects ever again mm -hmm. in Alberta. I remember seeing her during the UCP leadership race and she was talking to a crowd just outside of Edmonton and she said, you know, we have to get permission from the federal government to build highway over a certain amount of kilometers. So this bill was really restrictive. Everyone was very celebrated when we got this ruling from the Supreme Court. And then Environment Minister Stephen Gilboa came out and said, well, you know, the Supreme Court ruling, that was really an opinion. Have we ever heard something like this from the federal government where they took a ruling from the Supreme Court and said, this is just an opinion? Well, only when they lose, because when they win, it's, well, this is authoritative. And like we knew, the Supreme Court called it. Yeah, when they lose, it's like they've just basically had some think tank report come in. It's, well, yeah, we'll take a look at it and we'll, you know, read and maybe Section 1 has something good. And, you know, maybe Section 5 has something good. Uh, but they've really decided they're going to plow ahead with this. And remember, it was similar on the plastics ban when the federal court just, uh, what was it, last week or two weeks ago came out and said that the government's plastics ban was unconstitutional. Uh, the federal government still was very defiant on this. And so, well, no, we're going to appeal and we're going to make it work and Canadians want this. So uh, it's really, I think, a bullheaded and pigheaded way of intruding into jurisdiction that doesn't belong to the federal government. And I think politically it helps Alberta a great deal because they can look at Stephen Gilbo and say, see, this is what we're up against. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. So that's one of the positives from Gilbo's response, I guess. You know, the provinces can point out the contradiction of the federal government and really just their unreasonableness. But at the same time, what recourse do provinces then have if the federal government isn't even willing to take the Supreme Court seriously? 
Well, I, look, I think that you're going to see more of these standoffs. I, I mean, Saskatchewan has uh, started advancing on this, like we're just not going to, you know, collect the taxes. And, you know, that's something that, you know, you get the Andrew Coins of the world that get very pearl clutchy about. And is it legal or not? I don't know. But it's certainly not constructive to have that relationship between provinces and the federal government. And I think that that's going to be ultimately what we see more of here, which is provinces doing things that are kind of walking right up to the line or maybe even going over the line because they want to respond in kind. And look, if a province is looking at the federal government and say, well, if you're not going to respect your constitutional obligations, why should we? And that's not what Canada is supposed to be about. But I do think it's the inevitable byproduct of that tension between the levels of government. And I don't blame provinces for doing that, because if the federal government wants to just treat the Constitution as a list of suggestions, why shouldn't they? Another big story, you mentioned it, was the plastics ban. Mm -hmm. I was so excited when I saw that this was being overturned. I'm so sick and tired of these gross paper straws <laughs> that get all soggy. I just don't even use them anymore. And also the reusable bags. I can never remember to bring mine to the mm -hmm. grocery store. My pantry is full. Like our house is going to be filled with these reusable bags that we never actually use. So, so this was a very good thing. Do you think we're going to see plastic bags and plastic store straws back in stores and restaurants soon? Plastic straws, maybe, because they're very popular and they're actually disability. I mean, dis people with disabilities had an exemption from the plastic straw ban, which kind of made it ridiculous uh, just because it was inconsistent. Plastic bags, I don't think are coming back. I think a lot of the big grocery chains, of which they're only like what, four or five in Canada, have already taken this dependency. They're making money off of these reusable bags that we all forget. They get to claim, oh, well, we're being environmental on our own without the regulations. So the government kind of gets the best of both worlds here because they've made the change even without having the law on the books still. So another story, I don't know if you caught this, this might be a surprise when this didn't get a lot of media attention, but Rajan Sani, she is the advanced education mm -hmm. minister. She came out and said that the UCP membership needs re-education. Now, she said this after the annual general meeting in which the membership passed some policies that basically said we want diversity, equity, and inclusion out of universities. Now, of course, policies pass at the AGM. They're non-binding. The government can decide whether or not they want to proceed with those. Rajan Sani said, you know, the base needs to be educated. And she basically said, uh, we're going to take a look at these. I'm going to do what's best for the province at the end of the day. Actually, her exact quote here, I just thought it was funny, says, I think it's always important to have conversations and have the opportunities to educate on exactly what some of these initiatives are as they relate to DEI. So a whole bunch of words out there that doesn't really mean anything, but I thought this was offensive. I think we've moved past a time when we can have politicians preaching at us and telling us as conservatives what we need to believe. I think that conservative membership is really tired of being told that they're offensive and they need to be re-educated. And what makes this worse is that Raj and Sonny wasn't even, she didn't even win a nomination. She was appointed yeah. in the yeah. riding she currently represents. So I don't know that she has a lot of support. I think she was given that appointment because she has favoritism with the premier. And I think she might've just burned that favoritism. What's your take on this? It's weird. I mean, I hadn't heard the quote and like, as you, described it it's very ambiguous is she saying people need to be educated about why these programs are good or educated about why they're bad or is she saying something just because she knows people will read into it either way I, I don't think anyone lecturing the base is going to go over well I think that you as a politician are there to serve and anytime you get into that mindset of uh, the people know wrong or the people are wrong and I know better even if you think you do know better it's not the way you lead so I think on this, we're seeing a, a turn across the province against this sort of program. I mean, those motions were passed very decisively. These were not just like on the edge. 
And if she's turning around and saying to those people, you're wrong, well, you're in the wrong party then, because clearly you and the base are at a lockstep on a pretty key issue. Well, not just that, the idea that we're going to ignore the membership and I'm going to do what's best for the province. What's the point of being there to govern? What's the point yeah. of putting conservative politicians in if they're not going to govern as conservative once they're actually elected? Yeah. I'm, I'm tired of that. We've seen it time and time again. Well, and, and what's the point of having a member-driven policy process? Yeah, exactly. I think things are changing. I think she's going to realize this was a really unpopular move pretty soon. Okay, the last thing I want to touch on is the Alberta pension plan. Mm. The Alberta government has finally announced they want to pull out their assets. They're claiming they have well over $300 billion of the assets. So that's over half of the total pension assets. Now, the federal government doesn't agree. They say that's not a correct number. They've been asked to provide their number, but they won't. So eventually this is going to go to a referendum, hopefully. But before that can happen, people need to know what the number is that they're actually going to be deciding on. So where do you see this going? Well, I, I mean, just picturing Pierre Polyev, like at that leadership debate to Jean Charest, just the number, just the number, just the number. Like, you're right, the number you need to have as the starting point, because that's going to color this. And I think that for a lot of Albertans, this is going to be a decision they make based on sovereignty and independence. You know, we just want as many things as we possibly can to be in our uh, wheelhouse and to get the federal government out. On the pension plan, I think the decision should be made based on economics. I don't actually think it should be made on sovereignty. I think that sovereignty empowers that decision, but you should look at what is economically in your best interest. And with that, the number is incredibly important because if, if you know, you have half the pension assets that are being distributed to the entire country, well, you're better off on your own. If that number isn't accurate, let's say the share, the Alberta share is 10% or 20%, whatever the number is, that changes the calculation for a lot of voters dramatically. So my presumption would be that you can't have an informed vote in a referendum based just on the Alberta number when that number is in dispute. So I don't know if there's anything they can do to compel the federal government to do an assessment, but that needs to happen. I wonder if it will result in litigation eventually to compel the federal government to produce that number, decide on something, and then to have the referendum. If I, if I can, just imagine if you went to the bank and the bank wouldn't tell you how much money you had in your account. I mean, it wouldn't go that, over well. Yeah, like that, that, and that's kind of what we're at now. It's, it, I, this is Alberta. They have a right to leave. No one disputes they have a right to leave, which means they have a right to know how much is theirs in that. Well, it seems like this policy proposal isn't super popular in the province at the time based on recent polling, but like I said, I think it'll be quite some time before mm -hmm. that referendum is held, so the provincial government has a lot of time to sway voters. All right, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that little Alberta Rounder from the last couple of months. Next week, we'll be back to our regular programming. Thank you so much for joining me today, Andrew. Thank you. Okay, see you guys next week.